0: you hear that old saying about looking for love in the wrong places I heard that a lot but it wasn't love that I was looking for I thought it was but I was looking for validation and as clinicians and practitioners it's a very powerful word and sometimes we think a little rabbit trail here sometimes we think because we're good parents take care of our kids and our families. We think that our children automatically know that we love them. We think they automatically believe that we believe they can do anything. You have to tell them. You have to validate them because if you don't, someone else will.
1: Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. The person you just heard speaking is Joyce Haskett. She is a survivor of human trafficking. And that is what this podcast is all about today. The problem of human trafficking, both labor and sex trafficking. In this podcast today, there will be two parts. The first part will be Joyce telling her story as a survivor and from where she came from to where she is now. In fact, I'm actually going to Wait to read her entire biography until the end of the episode, although it will be in the show notes for you to read right now because her story is so amazing that I don't want to spoil it for those who want to hear it. Just a heads up for those of you who might be sensitive to graphic material Joyce's story is authentic and raw and true and does contain graphic material that is not suitable for minors and may cause some people to feel upset especially if you have heard or known of somebody in similar situations and even if you haven't the second half of today's episode features dr jeremy norwood i interview him and discuss the problem of human trafficking around the world and in the united states as well as related cultural factors economic factors legal factors and much more Dr. Jeremy Norwood is an amazing advocate for those being trafficked and he lists many resources and information for you to learn more and also how to fight it in your community. I want to thank the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association for putting on the training where I first met Joyce and Dr. Norwood, also known as Jeremy, and where I learned a great deal more than I thought I would ever learn about this subject. Being a counselor, I have read about this topic in the news and thought I knew a lot about it and the scope of it, but after the six-hour training uh, featuring Joyce Haskett and Jeremy Norwood, I realize now that there is so much more to know and so many ways that the local community can get involved to stop this evil from proliferating and so um, right after this we're going to hear an introduction by jeremy norwood and then joyce's story then the interview and then i will read their biographies and also put some of that stuff in the show notes and some other quotes as well but i kind of want to this story and this interview to speak for itself thanks for listening All right. Thank you, Dr. Norwood, for agreeing to uh, be on my podcast for this interview.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity. Please feel free to call me, Jeremy.
1: All right. I will do. And so, so far, um, this podcast I've announced is going to be about human trafficking. And so just before we get into the main interview where I ask you about your expertise, I, I wanted to preview the fact that our listeners are about to hear Joyce talk. So, can you just tell us a maybe a minute or so about Joyce and why we chose her to why you chose her to speak? And
2: sure, Joyce workshop? Joyce Haskett and I we've we've known each other for the last few years. Uh, I first met Joyce uh, when we were we were attempting to put together a keynote speaker um, opportunity from a, a, a survivor perspective on human trafficking for our annual um, conference at Spring Arbor University, which we do every October. And I, I, I contacted Joyce, a student had heard her speak and just raved about her, uh, about her story, about how she could tell you about this, just these pits of depravity uh, involved in trafficking, but bring you out with, with such hope and inspiration. And so we've known each other for a few years. Uh, I, I couldn't do these workshops um, for Mahaka or anyone, really, uh, without a survivor to be able to share a sort of a real life Angle to this because um, I can go up and share research and statistics and indicators and causes and all this stuff, but but it really it it has no meaning unless someone can put you know this can tell a story and put a face to it, and so Joyce does such a great job with that, and it's it's been great to partner with her in this in these trainings. So
1: absolutely, and thank you for that introduction. And without further ado, we're going to hear Joyce tell her story.
2: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Joyce <laughs> Haskell. oh yeah all right
0: awesome well it sounds like everybody's awake (laughs) um i am really glad to be here it's a pleasure for me to be able to work with dr norwood jeremy my buddy um you know i'm not just saying this because jeremy's my friend but i've been to so many of these trainings and you're not going to get the quality of training And the substance that you get from other people that you get from Jeremy so you should really count yourselves blessed today because you're really getting some good stuff. Uh, I'm Joyce Dixon-Haskett. I am a survivor as you probably already know Um, and one of the things I like to start with is a story because I didn't understand how important it was then. Um, I didn't understand it until years and years and years later. And when we talk about human trafficking, sometimes we think that it starts at that first encounter where the first sexual event takes place. Well, it really doesn't. Starts a long time before that. Starts with a mindset. It starts with trauma, maybe. Or abuse and neglect. Um, It can happen anywhere to anybody, any strata um we like to think that that economics and 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 your geographical locations they all make a difference they don't it's the person but for me it was I remember being about seven years old well I was seven and my family was dysfunctional right strike one I never knew who my father was never knew who he was and um, I love it when I come to these events and I see men in the room um, because they need to know how important they are and how important the roles are in their lives particularly with their families and if they have daughters It's huge and my We always lived in the house with my grandmother, because my grandmother always knew, she always had a house big enough for us to come to, because she knew we'd end up there ultimately, my mother, my brother, and myself. My mother was, she loved me as much as she could, but she was also looking for her own validation. So I remember one day, we were, I was at my grandma's, and there was a carnival across the street. The church people had a carnival across the street. You know, they have the Ferris wheels and the merry-go-rounds, and it's free. And I'm seven, and I wanted to go. My grandmother said, yes, go. So I went. And so this preacher guy said, OK, you kids can go and play on the Ferris wheels and the merry-go-rounds and all that stuff. But first, you have to listen to what I have to say. I'm like, we seven, I, didn't, I don't want <laughs> to get on, my, get on my horse and ride around the merry girl, right? But what he did was he started to talk about this man named Jesus, all right? I had never heard a person spoken of the way he talked about this man, I'm seven. But I remembered that when he got done talking, I didn't want to play anymore. I went back to my grandmother's house. And I know we got some whippersnappers in here, but some of you may remember Grandma's old three-piece sectional. You know, the the good pieces that were covered with the plastic. (laughs) Yeah. So I remember going back to my grandmother's house. And I remember sitting on that piece in the middle, my legs sticking to the plastic. But I remembered. Saying, Jesus, 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 come into my life. Jesus, 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 come into my life. Little girl, Jesus, 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 come into my life. And I just sat there. And I'm telling you, it felt like something happened to me. I felt something. Something, something went on. And I believed from that moment that I would never be hurt again. I believed in that moment that I would always be protected, that I'll always be safe. the very next week I was molested.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm in my own room in my own bed It's Friday night, and they did what they do every Friday night, drinking, playing cards, folks coming over to the house. And I'm in my bed. And I wake up in the middle of the night. There's a man sitting on the side of my bed. He's got one hand over my mouth and his other hand in my pajamas. And what I remembered about that man was he had very large hands. And he hurt me. And somewhere in his excitement, he must have forgotten where he had his other hand because it was no longer over my mouth, but it was over my nose, and I couldn't breathe. And I remember lying there in all that pain, thinking, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's Mama? Where's anybody? And the worst part about it is there was a room full of people 10, 15 feet away. What makes it even worse than that? This man did this to me for as long as he was a friend of the family. This is what I had to look forward to. Every Friday night. Until after one Friday night, too much drinking, arguments, he was no longer welcome at the house or he decided not to come over anymore. This went on for months. Nobody noticed the change in me. And how does a seven-year-old explain the concept of molestation? How does a seven-year-old explain to you that she's been violated, she's been hurt, that everything that was sacred to me is now gone, the people who were supposed to keep me safe didn't? How does a seven-year-old explain that the reason I can't look at you when you talk to me is because if I look at you, you're gonna know what I did. And obviously it was my fault, right? It went on for so long, it had to be my fault. I had to be bad because if it wasn't my fault, then Jesus would not have allowed it to happen. It's my thinking at seven years old. I believe that it's just my personal belief that there is some kind of an aura which attaches itself to a young child who's been molested Mm -hmm. and it's like a magnet for other perpetrators it's as if they can they're familiar with that spirit because I have been molested by friends of the family, family members, was molested by deacons in the church. Yeah, we got problems in our churches. And I never thought I was a bad person. And I grew up, in the interest of time, I grew up promiscuous. In high school, junior high school, I was having sex. And I was not having sex because I was trying to be a tramp. I was having sex because, you know, you, you know the, the those lines that the guys used to run on you. If you love me, you'll do this. Show me how much you love me and I would give them my sex because I wanted them to know that I loved them because it was the best thing I had and I was giving them my best and I wanted them to know that so needless to say I was a girl that the guys wanted to be with but nobody wanted to take home to meet their mother and after years and years of this you can't help but to, to develop this sense of worthlessness that you are less than other people and the more you do the less you appear to be accepted it was all messed up in my head so at 16 i was pregnant with my first kid 18 pregnant with my second one two different dads right and one day And I tried to be a good girl. I tried. I went to work. I had jobs. Tried to do good. Wanted people to see the good in me and accept it. But it just that reputation. That's who she is. So, one day, this guy pulls up. In his big car. With girls money, looking good. Oh my goodness. And you hear that old saying about looking for love in the wrong places. I heard that a lot, but it wasn't love that I was looking for. I thought it was. But I was looking for validation. And as clinicians and practitioners, that's a very powerful word. And sometimes we think, a little rabbit trail here, sometimes we think because we're good parents, take care of our kids and our families, we think that our children automatically know that we love them. We think they automatically believe that we believe they can do anything. You have to tell them. You have to validate them, because if you don't, someone else will. So here I am with this guy now. He's buying me designer clothes and he's telling me I'm beautiful. He's telling me he loves me and he's taking me to these expensive restaurants. He's bringing money and liquor to my mother and my grandmother. They're loving him. One of the first things they do is learn how to separate you from your support system. So, I'm in a great place now, because I'm validated, right? I am somebody now. Okay. All of a sudden, the honeymoon is over. I got two kids, two small young kids, young boys. But now the honeymoon is over. And I remember getting knocked down, bam. Knocked down for saying things like I thought. Bitch, you don't think. I think for you. What? What did you call me? BAM! You know, somebody calls you a bitch, but well, we're ready to fight. <laughs> Knocks me down again. This is a man who will literally leave footprints in your chest. What in the world is going on? What in the world is happening? So. I show up at my mother's house all beat up. You know what they say to me? Joyce, what do you keep doing to this man to make him do this to you? And if you leave him, what about us? He's good to us. That was my support system. He knows just by that that he's got them. Now appointments are being made for me in hotels with strangers. I've been promiscuous growing up, but never anything on this level. Never anything like this. And I'm thinking, you know, he meets me, he loves me, oh my goodness, what has happened? You know, he had been watching me for a long time. Because that's their job. To find the vulnerable ones, the needy ones, the ones who need to be validated. Now. Here I am, going to a hotel, what's your name sir? Mark. Mark? Mark. Mark. Take note. A lot of people like to think it's like this. Hi Mark. Hello. My name is Joyce. Hi Joyce. You know Mark,
2: hang with me here. Okay. Mark, I'm here to have sex with you. What? I'm here to have sex with you. <laughs> You're
0: gonna pay me some money. What? And if everything goes well, Maybe we can do it again. That's not how it works. (laughs) Mark says, what? That must be Mrs. Mark right there. He says, what? A lot of people like to think that, that that's how it is. It's not. Because you never know what's waiting for you on the other side of those doors. Who they are. Who he is. What the mindset is. What the fantasy is. What the plan is for you. They've already thought about what they wanted to do, what they wanted to do to you. These are people who pay for sex. These are people who pay to, to do to you what they can't do to their own wives. They pay to do to you what they can't do to their own daughters, their daughters' friends. I walk into a room, I talk about two situations because that's pretty much all I can handle. I walk into a room, there are three guys. I don't want to offend anybody, but let me tell you, this is an offensive industry. Mm -hmm. There's nothing pretty about it. You want to talk about human trafficking? Let's talk about it. Three guys in a room, right? They stick their penises in every hole I have at the same time. painfully brutalizing can't breathe gagging they hurt me and it was fun for them they didn't care that they hurt me or they were tearing me in places they didn't care about that because I was not a person I was only a product a product they had paid for And it was so bad, and so gross, and so disgusting, and so painful. I remember laying there praying, God, help me. Help me, oh God. But then I thought, why in the world would God want to help you, you nasty thing? You nasty thing. It appeared that he'd never helped me before, right? So again, it's my fault. That I'm even in that situation. So you lay there and you try to dissociate, but there's no place to go. You try to find some way to stay there until it's over. You try to find, you know, some level of dignity to try and get up with and walk out with. There is none. Because one, you don't even know how you're going to get up and walk out. If you're even going to be able to get up and walk out. Because until you walk out of those doors, you're still subject to them. They can still do whatever they want to do to you. So I managed to get up. You know, when I was getting myself up, they laughed about what had just happened. Who had done what. How it felt. What they'll do differently next time. And I walk out and you always try and make yourself feel better about what has just happened because if you don't there's no way you're going to be able to do it again the next time. And there's no way out and you know you're going to have to do it again the next time because you're still with this guy. You know, doing these things, so much comes back. Stuff that I spent 20, 20, 25 years trying to forget. To let you know it's not all about sex. Human trafficking is about money, control, power, manipulation one time I am the entertainment at a party so what they do is they strip me naked stand me up in the middle of a bed and start to beat me with pool sticks Mm -hmm. and they beat me and they beat me and the wager was how many licks I could take before I went down Mm -hmm. and in the middle of that I heard some guy say Somebody needs to check this bitch's purse because she's got to pay for these bloody sheets. Ha, ha, ha. they were beating me. Finally, the pool stick broke over my head, and I thought, it's over now. They're going to stop. No, they just called for another stick. Started beating me again. This time, I went down. And when I went down, I couldn't see but I could hear, and I heard one guy say, you know you've got a killer. You can't take her to the hospital because they're going to ask too many questions. And I remember praying again, God, please don't let someone read to my children that they found their mothers dead naked, faced out and ditch. I knew I had done some. Pretty bad things. But I never wanted my children to have to come to that. So I heard a guy say, the guy say I can't kill her. Can't kill her. So they wrapped me up in a sheet like a mummy, put me in the back seat of a car, drove me to Henry Ford Hospital, and threw me on the back dock. I had a bag of garbage I couldn't move I laid out there for about three hours a maintenance man found me took me in they asked me one time what happened to me and I wouldn't tell once nobody asked me again Later on I realized that nobody asked again because when people ask you questions like that and you give them an answer then that requires somebody to do something. A lot of times people don't know what to do or they don't want to get involved with something like that and they justify not doing anything by saying hey this is the life she chose. This is just power for the course. So I was in the hospital for 13 days. 13 days. And when it was was time to release me, guess who they released me to? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: To him. So after that, I'm thinking, I can't do this anymore. You know, the lifespan of a victim in the streets is five to seven years. The lifespan. I can't do this anymore. Either he's going to kill me, or somebody in those streets is going to kill me, somebody's going to kill me. So I decide that the only way out of this for me is to kill him. And I decided that because I knew that you can't wound these people. (laughs) You can't shoot them in the arm or the leg as a warning to leave you alone. They'll only make an example out of you. But in the streets every day, you can get a gun anywhere. And I got a gun, took it back with me, hid it in an upstairs bathroom that he didn't use. Waited for my opportunity. Came downstairs. Had the gun hidden in my robe. And the robe was only hip length, so because you had to be, you had to be visible, he had to be able to see you. And I was so scared. But I wasn't scared for the reasons that you might think. I was afraid that, what if the gun doesn't go off? Or what if it jams? Or what if he sees it? And I sat there waiting for my opportunity. He was all stretched out laughing. I was sitting in the chair. Got up, looked at him, shot him once in the head, and watched him lay there and die. And then I thought, what in the world is the matter with me? What's wrong with me? I didn't panic. I didn't go to pieces. I found a way, got myself together, got dressed, found the keys, let myself out of the house because you couldn't get out once he let you out. So I left. I was gone for a couple of weeks, called home, you know, come on home, went back home, turned myself in, went to jail, I'm sorry to say that night I spent in jail was the best sleep I had had in I don't know where. Didn't know anything about the law, it was election year, had never been in trouble before. Had a bench trial, which is crazy. Bench trial, as you know, there's no jury, just a judge. It was crazy. It lasted a day and a half, about that time when it was over. I had been found guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to spend the rest of my natural life in prison. But God. When the judge said you will die in prison because you have non you have non-parolable was non-parole premeditated murder is non-parolable. No parole board here. No you will die in prison. That's what he said. And I was so conflicted because I wasn't a killer, but I killed. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a murderer, but I did murder. It was premeditated because I thought about it. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it because I wanted to survive. Then my mom, oh, my baby, I was on my way to prison then. And I think one of the things that hurt me most was And I couldn't understand how this could even happen. But they made him the poor innocent victim. And I was a cold-blooded killer. That really hurt. But I'm on my way to prison now. So I go to prison, nothing for women, no education, nothing. No no access to the courts, no libraries, no law libraries, nothing. So I decided that I was going to try and learn as much as I could about how to help women in prison and their children. So some aggressive attorneys, young attorneys, came through from Michigan and started to work on women's issues in the prison. And I was fortunate enough to be one of those who worked with these attorneys. And it took 11, 12 years. We finally won the case for women to have the right to education. And access to the courts it took 12 11 12 years for that and the University of Michigan decided that they were going to implement this pilot program with women from the prison so three women were chosen from the prison to see if they could do this pilot program and I just you know just really happy to say that I'm the first woman to ever graduate from the University of Michigan while behind, while behind bars, go blue. No haters in here. Come on. <laughs> and so, and so to get to the end of the story, I'm in prison. I'm in prison for a long time. And how many of you have ever been, or have any of you ever been a part of the little church prison ministry group? Yes. Well, it's you know it's the it's the ministry in the church that's probably the most unpopular. <laughs> you know they faithfully they go to the prison to have church. Sometimes they get in, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're in, they get put out. <laughs> they come back anyway. But this one week, and remember, I did everything in the prison you can do. I did it all. Because when you get there, it's about adaptation and survival. You do what you need to do. But on Sundays, I went to church. And one Sunday, this little, the group was there, a little old black lady. She was about 8, 75, 80-something years old. You know, and at that age, they have no filter. <laughs> no filter, because they figure they've lived long enough to say whatever it is they want to say. And she looked at me, come here, baby. That was in my good voice. Yes, ma'am come here. So I walked over to her. She said, how much time you doing? Just like that. How much time you doing? (laughs) I said, I'm doing natural life. That woman looked at me and said, as long as there's breath in your body, there's hope. And your hope is in Jesus. There was that Jesus again. (laughs) (laughs) And she said it with such authority. Like she knew what she was talking about. And like at seven, when I was at the carnival, I didn't want to stay there anymore. I went back to my cell. Fell down on my face. In that concrete floor, in my own snot, in my own tears. Because I had nothing left to keep me going. No hope. Nothing. And I fell down on my face. I said, God, if I die in this prison, it's okay. If I die right here... It's okay, just as long as you save me. And as I was laying down there, and I was crying, and you know, I got crusty on my face from the snot. (laughs) But I laid there, and I meant what I said. And I heard the judge's voice in my ears. You will die in prison. And you know what? He was right, and I'm not ashamed to say it, because The old Joyce laid there and died, and a new Joyce in Christ Jesus got up. When I got up off that floor, I don't know where it came from, but I had new hope. I knew somehow that I was going to make it. I knew that I was. And now I know that that thing that I felt when I was seven years old, that thing that was down in me is the thing that kept me alive. It kept me. I saw so many women in prison die. But God kept me. And I got up, and just like that, things, information, I was a paralegal. Information I had been looking for just showed up in the mail for six years, just showed up in the mail. People I had been fighting with for in the Department of Corrections for years, all of a sudden, wanted to help me. I had no money, no lawyers. I won five appeals, and they were all overturned in the Michigan Supreme Court all of them, I got a court-appointed lawyer. The judge who had sentenced me and who had denied all my other appeals died. (laughs) He was like, all of a sudden, he died. (laughs) He was gone. (laughs) I'm like, ooh. (laughs) Then, his son, who had the same name, they were going to, they, they automatically said he had the seat. Well, this woman, the first woman ever in the history of the circuit, ran against this this judge, this guy who they knew was gonna be a shoe in, she won. She had this campaign manager, this attorney campaign manager who's like a junkyard dog.
2: <laughs> oh yeah.
0: Somehow, I had no more money, a jailhouse lawyer found an issue in my case, filed, we filed a petition, they granted me, said, okay, we're going to let her have an evidentiary hearing which doesn't mean anything, but says somebody's going to listen. I didn't have an attorney, so I had to file for a court appointed attorney. The attorney that I got just happened to be the can- that junkyard dog campaign manager <laughs> who had worked for the judge, who had gotten the judge elected. Somehow I got her to be my attorney. She was my attorney. Well, I'll make a long story short. The day before I was supposed to go back to court, don't tell me miracles don't happen. The day before I was supposed to go back to court on an evidentiary, which nobody really expected to be much, my attorney called and said the prosecuting attorney called her and said that he couldn't sleep the night before because I had been on his mind all night long. He called, and they vacated my sentence. My sentence was vacated before I even got back to court. I get back to court. The judge says you don't have a sentence, so I can't send you back to prison, so we're just gonna keep you here until we do a new pre-sentence investigation report. Did all that, get to court, every professor I had had from Michigan was in court for me. Every teaching assistant I'd ever had was in court for me. You guys know how hard it is to get a TA to be anywhere. They don't have to be. (laughs) They called the, the people in the department. Called the judge and said, "If you want this woman to walk out of your courtroom, this is the language that you use." It was amazing. They got up from Michigan and said, "If you let this woman out, this woman walks out of your courtroom. We'll have a spot for her in the master's program on the main campus in four weeks." All I heard that judge say was, "Joyce Dixon, have a good life." <laughs> Boy, I walked in. Yes. 17 years, 17 years, 120 days, I stood in the sunlight for the first time with no handcuffs, no leg irons, no belly chains, no shackles, no parole, no halfway house. I was free. Because he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Now I'm not trying to tell anybody how to think. I'm just telling you what worked for me. (laughs) And the rest is history. I've never looked back. And I've done there's some amazing things that have come out of my situation, but what I want to say to you is, it's not how the story begins that's important. It's how the story ends. And I'm in this thing, and I'm not going anywhere. And I'm going to fight until, you know, until somebody else, until I don't have to fight, and somebody else can just take it up and move on with it. But in all that. I just want you to say I am good. And thank you for listening and not throwing things at me. And that's it. I'm done. Okay.
1: So everyone just heard Joyce's story, and I think the story speaks for itself. Um, I don't really have any other commentary besides uh, a lot of tears in the room. And this is the second time I've heard the story, and I myself was crying just listening to her tell her story.
2: Yeah, she's her story is powerful, and it's amazing. And I I understand it's difficult to follow that uh, because it's extremely powerful. And so I... You know, to to see people stand up and clap and to, to to encourage her and to cheer her on is is pretty amazing too. So we appreciate the support.
1: Absolutely, she's very inspirational, and I know now she works as a social worker, uh, a private practice therapist in the Detroit area, and the link will be in the. Um, description of this episode as well, and I know she's spoken about this all over the state of Michigan and I think probably elsewhere at this point by now.
2: She has. Uh, she she works closely with Senator Judy Emmons um, in promoting these anti-human trafficking initiatives. She also, uh, as part of her work, she does a lot of, um, well, she fought so hard for for women to get an education in prisons. and 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 some of these different facilities. And so now what she's actually done is her 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 program, which has been, you know, uh, adopted by the state of Rhode Island, that she her program she put together in her master's program and after that, has been adopted at the state of Rhode Island. And now there there is a documentary actually made about this program and how it transformed the lives of some children whose whose um, parents were incarcerated, and so there's that documentary, and she's been able to travel. She's had opportunities to travel all over the country where this documentary has been screened. So it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, the the premiere was in San Francisco.
1: What's the right? documentary again? I remember she told me about. It. I can't remember the name. Yeah, probably should I, have had that.
2: I'd have to double check okay. the name too.
1: <laughs> what we will do is I will find out the name of the documentary and I will put it in the show notes. Um, so this is you know pretty much unedited. We like to just you know talk about what everything off the cuff and this is real conversation and this is a real issue. So, and Joyce is a a survivor and not a lot of people survive as she discussed in her story. This average street life is five to seven years. right? Um, And she was able to come out of it and now help a lot of people. And I think not only can she help women in prison and people that have been exposed to this, but I think this is also helping us wake up as a society to an issue that's been in the shadows for many many years and so i remember before i went to the training in march i thought i knew about human trafficking i had heard about it through various sources it's been in the news it's been talked about a lot by large groups in the united states about we have this large problem and i primarily thought it was uh, sex trafficking although i had heard about some labor violations But when I went to your talk, I, my mind was opened and to a whole new level of how pervasive and insidious and evil this is, but how large it is and how global it is. And then how it's actually in our own backyard here in Michigan being an agricultural place, but also in our cities with the sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. So I'm, we don't. We, you This training, for those listening, is what, six hours? Yeah, that we're it's giving a full-day full
2: training, yeah. So yeah. I
1: appreciate Dr. Norwood, Jeremy, coming in here and letting me have a, him for about half an hour to talk to us about this. So I just kind of want you to start wherever you want, maybe either at the story of how you got into it or just some of, maybe start with some of the facts and then get into the story about uh, your kind of some of the bigger points that you think about with this.
2: Sure. No, I, I think that... Uh, many of the individuals that come to be trained, and this is a training that's required, you know, the the state of Michigan is required for counselors and social workers and dental hygienists and a number of these different professions. Uh, It's been a great opportunity to raise awareness about this issue because a lot of people, as you mentioned, Paul, I mean, uh, think of human trafficking as a minor victim of sex trafficking. And while there are those cases, what we have to realize is that uh, there are non-minor victims of human trafficking, sex trafficking. There's also this incredible uh, um, um, issue of labor trafficking, which really from a, a numerical standpoint, uh, whether it's global, national, or even local, we find so many more victims uh, there, so many more victims are coming forward that are victims of labor trafficking than there are sex trafficking. Now that's not to put down. There are victims of sex trafficking too, but but labor, you know, outpaces you know six, seven to one in some cases globally, three or four to one, and so when we look at that, it, labor is really sort of the, the 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 more serious issue that we've got. Um, sex trafficking is there too, and is also serious, just not as prevalent.
1: Right. Yeah. But interesting, I think um, from what I've been gathering just in the media, uh, the sex trafficking is so traumatic. And, sure. and to and I think there's been an awakening about uh, women's rights and just yeah. the the amount of this going on in our community that I think that's always, that's been getting more pressed. But I remember statistically what you're right. saying, right. T- statistically speaking, that is much less in the United States than the labor problem. So yeah. let's, I know you don't have your notes in front of you right now, but off yeah. the top of your head, how how bad is this both sex trafficking and labor trafficking in the human trafficking problem in the United States?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things that's problematic here is, is that we don't necessarily have the best. I mean, how do you measure or quantify a hidden population? Right? Right. So some of the numbers, you know, you look at globally, we're talking about you know, 40 million, I think, is is where we're at in terms of the number of victims of human trafficking globally Currently, now. Currently. 40 million people 40 million are being people. human trafficked. That's right. And okay. it's a $150 billion industry. You know, those are, I believe those are both the most recent numbers from the ILO. Um, but when we look at it nationally, I, I don't know that there's necessarily a set of data that is, is really hard and fast in terms of the number of of victims of, of sex trafficking labor trafficking. Uh, we know we we know what we, we use is really sort of those that report. Mm. Right. So we mm-hmm. use reporting data through organizations like the Polaris Project, um, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Youth. We we use some of those data that are out there, but we really don't, we really don't have a way to measure it in Michigan as well. There have been some methodologies that have attempted to. So you have some numbers, right? It started off in the tens of thousands. Now we're looking at the hundreds of thousands. but it's but it's really hard to sort of pin down because it's that hidden population, right? right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I remember hearing uh, we live I live right now in most of the year in Kent County, Michigan. Right, and right. I know Kent County has a huge human trafficking. A task force and a bunch of nonprofits I should say a bunch, a handful, I don't know, at least four or five that I know of yeah, yeah. that are fighting human trafficking right here in Kent County. And so when I remember, I said to you, I said, oh my gosh, is Kent County just worse? Because look at these numbers. Right. And you said to me, well... That actually could be biased because we're actually paying attention in Kent County and discovering the sex trafficking and labor trafficking in this county. Sure. And thus we have these numbers, but we don't know the numbers for some counties in Michigan. We have no idea.
2: That's correct. And I think, I I don't know if I would say bias, but I I, I like what Kent County is doing. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. awareness. Uh, There are a lot of individuals getting involved in the anti-human trafficking movement in Kent County. Kent County also has the resources to address an That's issue true. like human trafficking. Um, but your, your point is, is spot on. I mean, how many counties in Michigan, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of any that have a running total of a number of, of victims of human trafficking. We could say, OK, here are the cases that have self-identified or self-reported in these areas. But, but does that scratch the surface in terms of the number of actual victims in those areas? I don't know. Another hotbed that you'll hear about, uh, Toledo. Right? Toledo's often on the radar because at the University of Toledo, and and in that community, they have a very robust task force that's attempting to do the best it can to measure the number of victims there. Um, but when we look at other areas, you know, whether that's where, you know where I'm I currently work in, in Jackson County, or you know you look at Ingham County, or you look at uh, Genesee County, or Wayne, or, or some of these larger counties, um, Oakland County, it, it's difficult to really quantify. And so we've really got to spend some time wrapping our minds around how do we measure this like we would a you know a, a sexual assault or rape or domestic violence victim how do we how do we measure this in the same way because it's traditionally it's not captured in some of those statistics
1: and so there's a lot of information here to cover sure. in a short amount of time so it i'm is. trying to figure out how to so basically to summarize we're just starting to uncover this problem in the last number of years and and yeah. what we've been discovering is this is way more than we thought it was right i think similar it reminds me of the book the body keeps the score where yeah um back in the 70s i want to say dr bessel van der kolk was researching um, incest and rape victims and also working with veterans with ptsd um and what we, he thought the prevalent cultural sort of saying was well i guess these veterans have whatever this shell shock ptsd is sure. but you know there's hardly ever any rape or incest victims those are so rare Right. and then he discovered um well no that's actually completely false there is and then uh, and then uh, and saw that there were so many coming into his office this could not just be this this street that i work on it just right. happens to have all these people showing up so and then statistically what we've been seeing is it's even worse and we're only seeing what's reported right and so i guess i'm trying to figure out how to explain the problem of human trafficking because for some people, this almost sounds overwhelming. I think, um, what do you mean this is going on? Who's doing this? Right. Why are they doing it? Sure. Where did it start? Right. Um, you know, I think it goes back thousands of years probably, It does. but but why hasn't our culture looked at it or are we complicit in not looking at it enough? Right. So uh, can you touch a little bit more into the story of, um, where does human trafficking originate now, right? And who's doing it and why?
2: Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head here, Paul. I think we historically, this has always happened. I mean right. we, we know this is old as this is as old as anything. Uh, but, but recently, there has been a bit more of a wave of awareness and research around this. Mm-hmm. And so I don't look at that as necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. I think it's an opportunity. Uh, what we have to remember with human trafficking is is that you're you know it, it involves um, some element of force fraud or coercion right, right. Uh, whether it's a sex trafficking case or it's a labor trafficking case there's some element of force fraud or coercion in cases of minor victims that you don't need to see force fraud or coercion it's this transaction uh, for sex or labor services and, and I think that's what when we look at this you know from a um, you know, a minor based standpoint, uh, it it really is human beings are bought and sold as commodities. And I think when, you know, when you look at that, whether this is, you know, um, decades or centuries ago or today, while it has changed, it's existed that whole time. And so when we look at that breakdown between sex and labor, that's when, you know, To what degree are we implicated? To what degree do we not want to see this? That's one of the reasons why I think, honestly, sex trafficking is focused on more is because a lot of us can collectively gather around and say, oh, this is so abhorrent that a child would be taken advantage of like this. Um, But when we think about, you know, the, money, or the, the history of the United States and the implications of labor trafficking and the transatlantic slave trade, or when you think about things like you know, the money I spend and what clothes I buy and who made those clothes, or, or you know, even where you know, uh, who picked the crops, you know, that I'm, the vegetables that I ate, I mean, there's a lot of implications in terms of what we say we value and we believe in and where our money goes and what that supports. And it, it, it causes us to look in the mirror and, and ask some really deep-seated questions, and a lot of times we don't—we don't always want to do that, and therefore we focus on the isolated individual cases of sex trafficking. And and I, th- I think you're right. I mean, I think this does happen in a lot of our communities. I mean, you know, in, in rural, this has happened in rural Michigan. You know, mm-hmm. this has happened in very well-off suburbs of Grand Rapids and Detroit, and in other um, other areas. Um, it's happened in in urban areas too, as we see. Some of our younger people in Jackson, you know, be, there's a pipeline that goes into sort of a Metro Detroit human trafficking ring. So when we look at some of these things, what we see is there's, there's really no way to put this in a box. I mean, it happens to a lot of different people in many different walks of life. And, it, and it's not that we're educating about this to make people afraid. We're educating about this so that they can be empowered to know what to look for.
1: Right. And so if we know what to look for, we might be able to help someone. Or report or something like that and report to the police, right. hopefully, yeah. that they would help, or the FBI or the, I think, the National, would you say, Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Yeah, the
2: The Polaris Project's got a national and hotline. Polaris yeah, Project. I mean, so, you know, the Polaris Project is really the national authority. I mean, for people who want to really dig in and learn more about this, the Polaris Project has a, a great website that can equip and empower a number of individuals. Yourself or me, um, the, the people on the front lines, law enforcement, counselors, social workers, teachers, um, uh, dental hygienists, I mentioned before, we're talking trying to get uh, audience with realtors, other individuals that are in the community mm-hmm. on a day to day basis that can look for these signs, you know, because there are a number of these signs. I mean, it, it's difficult to go through and just list a you know, a group of five or something. But um, when we look for indicators, you know, individuals who don't have possession of their documents, I mean, uh, their birth certificates, their driver's license, you know, somebody is speaking for them. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the domestic violence, you know, we talk about power and control. Um, any sort of uh, marginality, whether it's education, racial and ethnic background, um, individuals with disabilities, mental health. I mean, individuals that are marginalized in many ways, excuse me, are looking for some of this affirmation in ways. And, and, it's, and it's picked up on the Internet. I mean, people are out there posting things about themselves that, that, that show these vulnerabilities. And it allows traffickers to utilize some of that information to sort of um, solicit uh, or to, to provide that affirmation in ways that people in these traditional support systems don't anymore, unfortunately. And so some of those indicators, I mean, those are just a number of them. There are, there, you can look on Polaris Project, there's a number of the, the rest of those. But when we talk about, you know, what to do moving forward, you know, we're looking at, you know, Polaris Project's got a hotline, 24 hours, seven days a week, over 200 languages. You, don't, you know, you could call for support, right? Mm-hmm. That's the one eight eight eight. Three seven three seven eight 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 number. The, the National um, uh, Center for Missing and Exploited Youth, I believe, is one eight hundred. The Lost. Um, you know, local dispatchers at nine one one. The FBI is, is is gained a lot of traction in some of their work regarding human trafficking. So there's some indicators, some ways that we can sort of empower ourselves, but also we've got to be willing to do something about it too. We've got to be willing to take action.
1: And yeah. it, so taking action. I just want to go there. So sure. there's a couple of points I wanted to just kind of summarize. I'm, yeah. I'm hearing, um, I think there's been an awareness in our culture about psychological uh, vulnerability due to trauma, right. but also just psychological vulnerability or, or sociological vulnerability, I suppose, about what's yeah. going on in your family system, right. support system, who's who's watching you, who's not, and and not just children, but adults as well. Correct. Um, and so psychologically speaking um for the perpetrators of these they're actually looking for people who might need help a person who might traditionally be um a child or an adult who doesn't maybe didn't grow up with the best um ideas on how to stay safe sure on how to uh, navigate the cultural systems sure. on how to get a job or something like this yeah. and they're actually looking for these people right. and finding them right and so i want to just take that back let's go back to my youth in the 1980s okay so i heard about prostitution right and so my images of prostitutes from television were from maybe some 70s cop shows and okay. in in those shows they would, Starsky and Hutch was one of them. There was a pimp named Huggy Bear.
2: Huggy Bear, yeah.
1: And he was this kind of cool dude who Starsky and Hutch would get tips on the real criminals. Sure. So the guys who shot people or ran drugs, as long as it wasn't weed, Huggy Bear would be like, hey, I kind of have the down low. Starsky and Hutch, these detectives, and they were friends with this pimp, essentially. And the pimp would always have these women around him and everybody looked happy, like they're having a good time. And he's a nice pimp. And that's kind of brought into some of the culture as a positive thing. Um, we see people saying in rap songs, I'm pimping, which sure. means, which is some sort of uh, euphemism for I'm doing well. Right. So it's sort of this positive thing. And then I remember in the movie Pretty Woman, Julia Roberts is a prostitute. And you know what? She it was her idea. She's making money. She's good looking. This is a way for her to pay through things. And this sort of this stereotype that I didn't realize was a stereotype until later that sure. this woman is choosing. To sell her body on the streets. And this was sort of, I grew up thinking this based on media images that I got. Well, come to learn about trauma and trauma training and sex trafficking and rape and incest victims and all this in my psychology school. Sure. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is the, that's like the shallowest image Right. The shallowest archetype of this is a woman deciding to do this and go into business and put up a shop at a hotel. Right. I mean, that's so shallow. It's actually completely backwards. Yeah, This is almost probably, I'm sure it's been the case at some point, but there's always psychological factors involved. And the majority of anyone in this is prostitution is not they're not a prostitute they are a victim of human trafficking and so that reversal in the cultural mindset i think is starting to happen as people are starting to get it yeah um these people are not just putting up a shingle like you know let's just say I, I'm not trying to compare, but to Amsterdam, where it is legal and they have bodyguards, and that even there it can be exploitative, yeah. even though they have that sort of quote unquote safeguard of yeah. having a bodyguard and all this. Yeah. Um, it can still be exploitative. Are they being paid enough? Did they actually want to get into this? Yeah. Um, were they molested? Is this, were they from a, a small country where you were either, you know, put into slavery or they left for Amsterdam? So yeah. the change in the cultural. Uh, mindset is coming in to essentially um, show that this is a huge problem, bigger than we thought. We already went over that. And secondly, this is not some, usually a choice that people are making. This is um, usually forced. And what you said was, um, I think you said some sort of exploitative sign is It's coercion. Right. It's coercion. And then when you get into it, of course, you've heard all these horror stories about people being fed drugs. People are threatened. People can't leave. People say, we'll kill your family if you leave. Yeah. This is all happening behind the scenes. Any comments on that?
2: No, I think you use some good examples there, you know, with, with sort of popular culture and how it glamorizes some of these things. Which I think, ideally, that's great. But reality is that, you know... The majority of your pimps aren't like Huggy Bear, right? <laughs> the they're you know, friendly. Yeah, yeah, I mean these these transactions that happen in terms of human trafficking, they're not nice, kind, peaceful transactions. It's this is there's a little bit more going on there, and I think you mentioned this understanding of trauma as sort of a gateway to better grasp that, right? So for every you know one of the movies that you listed, there are also ones like you know trade. Or memoirs of a geisha. There are documentaries, you know, uh, like Break the Chain, which is a Michigan-based documentary about human trafficking. Um, there are others, you know, whistleblower gets into the implications of military and peacekeeping with hiring out, you know, uh, sex, you know, sex workers, just establishing these human trafficking rings. There are a number of these these other forms of movies and media documentaries that show us a little bit more about what this is like other than just this glamorized notion of, of what this is. So I think as we do more research and we understand this a little bit deeper beyond sort of the pop culture references that you're right, you and I grew up with, um, we, we understand how uh, severe, how, how dangerous this often is and, and how traumatic it is, right? And even
1: going further, there's two points I want to make. So hopefully I can make them uh, okay. with... With regards to this, because I did hear your training, the first one is w- what was scary to me was back in the 90s, I even remember think, a hearing on the news, some prostitutes were arrested for sure. prostituting. Sure. And what I'm thinking is, a, a, or even a pimp. Yeah. Um, but where? why are we not arresting the patrons yeah. who know what they are doing and what they are paying for, which are causing the demand for this Uh, either sex or labor trafficking, I guess we're talking a little bit more about sex trafficking for a second. What's up with that? Why aren't we we arresting these people? Well,
2: I, I think with the victims themselves, what we find is often they're the ones with the least social power. So we're not asking questions about why these establishments are trafficking people. We're not asking questions about why businesses are hiring and exploiting workers. We're, we're, we're upset and frustrated about the workers themselves instead of looking at this as a larger picture. And, and also one of the things you talk about is demand side. So how do we address demand? How do we address this masculinity that, that really sort of runs unabated without being held accountable? Um, and when we, when we look at that, we've really got to, again, ask some larger questions here. What messages do we have in our society? What figures in our society right? What individuals with this disproportionate level of social power are sending messages that it's okay to treat people like this, that it's okay to commodify and objectify people just as they're an object or something to be bought and sold. I know Joyce and I, obviously, we, we use these examples of of bottled water, right? I mean, bottled water is something that is is increasingly become commodified. I mean, as opposed to a, a drug or a, a a weapon, it can be, you know, a human being can be used over and over and over again. And so this idea of of, of, of being a commodity, right is, is very important. And the demand side in terms of rehabilitating men um, and other and, and, and other individuals who are being trafficked, I mean, that that gets into, you know, the funding and mental health and some of this trauma training and the sort of the aftercare. I mean, one of the things that, that comes up with this is, if everyone in one of these trainings, you'll say, you know, well, if everyone went out and identified a victim of human trafficking, would we have enough beds or enough places to care for them?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that's another thing we want run up against, Paul, is how do we fund aftercare programs for victims of human trafficking without taking from these other agencies or groups that are also attempting to address some of these symptoms of trafficking as well? So the aftercare piece is a whole another whole another question that really, from a funding standpoint, you know, we've got to be able to fund these things. We can't just continue to scapegoat individuals that are being victimized by traffickers, uh, workers that are being exploited by their 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 employers. We can't keep victimizing these people. We've got to look at it at a much bigger picture.
1: So, and so this is a this is a this is a problem we have as a society and sure. as a world. Yeah. Which comes down to what people believe about human life. Sure. And human rights. Yeah. And we can be, oh, we are pro-human rights. United States, we're pro-life, we're pro-human rights and all yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of a mindset yeah. people have. So what I'm saying is it comes down to it's worse than we think. What's going on? Behind closed doors, uh, in businesses or farms that are exploiting laborers sure. and not giving them wages sure. and charging them for their stay, even though they said it was going to be free—that's a whole portion we didn't really get to cover. That's right. Although that's even the larger problem. Yeah, but it's. But I'm try. I feel like people will be able to understand the sex trafficking first, and human trafficking later. But it's getting so bad that not only are these people being kept. In these terrible domestic violence type of relationships, they're also almost being kept in cages with barcodes on their neck. Is right. the latest thing I've heard? Branding, barcodes, yeah. uh, barcodes, yeah. and branding on the skin. Sure. So they're basically saying we're not only dehumanizing you with acts in you know drawing you into these relationships, or we're we're essentially s- stealing you, um, stealing you of your human rights to have any type of freedom at all. Right. You work for us for nothing. It's essentially the same slavery that we thought we got rid of, um, you know, with, with the civil war in the United States, yeah. with human human labor, we thought we got rid of that, it's actually just gone underground with the sex trafficking and also the labor trafficking, right. and it's always people without social clout, not always, I'm sorry, yeah. a, a lot of times it's people without social clout, because some of the reason I think uh, Michigan passed the bill was there was a lady who was sex trafficked from some family that had connections sure. i don't know if you know about her but
2: yeah I, and, and the other thing you're right paul i mean the other thing that we have to be honest about too is is that it isn't just how we spend our money and what's going on physically but the mindset and the language in some of these things it's almost as if we're scapegoating the victims to distance ourselves from any responsibility we have to our neighbor right so this idea that if if I believe that this woman, who's a trafficking victim, has chosen this. Then, well, that's then she deserves that. Then I don't and have then to, I look don't have at to that. do anything, right? Or this individual has broken the law to come to to look for, you know, really to to realize the American dream, just as you and I have. Whatever's left of that American dream, we could debate, right? But but really, this idea of uh, I, they're coming to make a living for their families to um, pick food and berries pick food and or whatever, and to do things that you and I wouldn't do. And instead of looking at that as somewhat admirable to take care of their families, we're instead labeling them and scapegoating them in a way that we don't share this responsibility for this gross inequality. And so in some ways, it, it, really, it, it really takes us to get closer to the issue, to get closer to people who are marginalized in our communities, to understand there's so much more in common that we have with people, victims of human trafficking, so much more in common than there is a part. And this divisive talk and this divisive labeling and stigma, it only it only f- further drives us apart. And so
1: that comes into the last topic because we got about a couple minutes to wrap it sure. up. Sure, sounds good. Um, essentially, which is that I think um, I don't. There's not one answer for this, but I guess okay. I'm kind of leading into this, which is we have as a as a collective. I think we're at a point where this divisive talk is just ruining. Uh, of relationships in its wrecking, you know, this passive-aggressive language in, in the, uh, in the in the cultural collective, and also this sort of, almost putting into law sometimes things that sure. can marginalize people further, yeah. is just yeah. going to wreck the whole project. Is going to wreck the whole experiment. Right. And so in that. How do we authentically admit? I, I read some statistic. Most American families are one paycheck away from being homeless, right? Right. right. And also one hospital uh, stay away from being uh, having loans to pay to the hospital that they can't pay, and therefore sure. basically being sort of an indentured servant. Yeah. Maybe not a slave, but an indentured servant to the yeah. system. Um, and so, this is actually, we're not, uh, you know, people maybe listening to this podcast have a phone or a computer that can hook up to this free source. Yeah. So, therefore, there's a little bit of cultural clout there. Sure. Um, you know, but, you know, everyone, including myself, we're not too far away from a vulnerable position. Now, right. you and I have gotten an education which has helped us maybe stay away from a situation. Um, and and we've had some luck there because yeah. we were born into that. You don't know, get to choose where you're born and who you're born to but and what social class sense, you're right. born into. Yeah. But we, uh, we you know, this comes down to a fundamental human question, which is, are we, do we look out for our neighbor? Right. Um, which you said earlier. and. Um, and what does that mean? Right. And how do we do that? And right. so I think people are g- coming alive with this idea that we need to fight human trafficking. but I, and yes, free the victims. Yeah. first of all, but I say after that, look at the people in your community that may be benefiting from labor trafficking mm. and talk to them. Yeah Look at the people in your community if you're a male on the golf course
2: yeah.
1: or whatever, and, and, and you hear about somebody taking advantage of escort services yeah. or um, making a joke about something about that, and you feel like that, you have an opportunity to say something. I know sure. that people think, oh, I would never know anyone who would yeah. use these services, but people are using these services, are right. using the sex trafficking, and people are benefiting off the labor, Right, and it's all over the place. Right. It's just dark, it's hidden, and so, in a, in a psychological sense, um, I think hopefully this is a beginning of looking at our own shadow sure. and and humanizing, rehumanizing, yeah. not only the victims but rehumanizing the perpetrators right. and trying to rehabilitate them. Why are you believing it's okay to take advantage of somebody who has uh, who is slightly weaker than you right. and to exploit them and take away their human freedom? Right, and so. We have both a responsibility to the victim, but also to the people with social clout who don't want to look at this and maybe perpetrating it. I remember you told me about right. somebody who was actually involved in human trafficking, who was supposedly a prosecutor of human trafficking yeah. here in Michigan. Right. I won't go into that case, but sure. cause we got to get you back to your presentation. Yeah. But I, I think you did a great job of, of summing this up, and I know you got six hours of material. <laughs> so if lot, you yeah. want to come to this training... yeah. I know um, I'm going to talk more about that in the notes, but the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association is sponsoring trainings with Dr. Jeremy Norwood. You can find out more on the web page. I'm going to link the webpage. page. Um, is there any other way people can get a hold of you or your project at Spring Arbor University?
2: Yeah, I think um, for people who want more information or more resources, I think the first place to start is that Polaris Project website. Any questions or maybe there's a case of, of human trafficking that you're suspicious about, you know that hotline one 888 Also, my information, uh, Jeremy Norwood uh, at Spring Arbor University. Uh, you can my my number is just 517-750-6720, as well as my email jenorwoo at arbor.edu. Be happy to help. Uh, thank you for listening and for, for helping us under for being willing to learn more about human trafficking.
1: Yes, and thank you for listening, everybody. Is there anything else you wanted to say as a, as a parting thing?
2: No, Paul, thanks so much for the opportunity to do this. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to work with Mahaka and also with Joyce Haskett in, in addressing this and bringing awareness and, and empowering people to understand what human trafficking is. This isn't about fear. This is about empowerment. And like you said, pulling ourselves together as a community to address this.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. I wanted to thank everybody for staying tuned. As promised, I am going to read a little bit more information about Joyce Haskett and Dr. Jeremy Norwood. But first, I wanted to say thank you for all the medical professionals out there that are remaining vigilant and looking for signs of people being trafficked. I know as a counselor and as social workers, we are being trained in the state of Michigan to look out for the signs of human trafficking and report it immediately to the FBI or the hotline that Dr. Norwood discussed immediately, as well as the local authorities. This is a gigantic problem and it's right under our noses. It's all over the world and it's in our own backyard here in the United States. So, I appreciate everybody who listens to this. Please share this information. Um, It's very essential to our life as a community so joyce haskett is now a private practice therapist in royal oak michigan obviously she's an advocate for women's rights who are being trafficked and those who have survived she is an advocate for women in recovery and she has been helping women gain rights to receive education while incarcerated joyce haskett runs an organization called daylily health Daylily Health is an organization that exists to provide services to survivors of human trafficking and support to those who serve them. We are also providing clinical programming to children of incarcerated parents as well as clinical services to those struggling with everyday life. This includes clinical therapy that addresses the mental and emotional problems of men, women, children, and families, all without judgment. You can find out more at daylilyhealth.org. I did find out the name of the documentary that features Joyce. It is called Tre Maison Desan, so T R E Maison M A I S O N, and then D A S A N. It's an urgent story that explores parental incarceration through the eyes of three boys, following their interweaving trajectories through a childhood marked by a criminal justice system, and told directly through their perspectives. The film grapples with the legacy of incarceration on growing up and the struggle to define what it means to become a man in America. This is a review, of course. Hilarious, heartbreaking, uplifting, and ending with tremendous hope. Trey, Mason and Dasan's lives are stories far too experienced but rarely told, filled with struggle, loss, empathy, resilience, and ultimately unconditional love. And this has been in film festivals all over the United States. And uh, basically, the filmmaker discusses that he met uh, Joyce Haskett, also known as Joyce Dixon Haskett, Who was incarcerated in Michigan uh, for 17 years? And her sons were six and eight years old when she went to prison and 23 and 25 when she got home. When she got out of prison, she got her master's degree in social work and created a psychological model that outlines the cycle of grief and trauma in children that go uh, for children when presented with the unique challenges and stigma of having a parent arrested and locked away. Her model was developed into a parenting program at the John J. Moran Medium Security Prison in Cranston, Rhode Island. And that is um, where this filmmaker began making the film. And I guess Joyce is featured in the film. It sounds amazing. I have not actually seen it, but now you can all see it. I know that the premiere was in San Francisco at a film festival there. And I was reading about this in at the Montclair Film Festival website page. Now, um, I really wanted to thank Dr. Jeremy Norwood for being part of this podcast today, and I want to just tell you a little bit about him. He's the Associate Professor of Sociology in the Department of Sociology, Global Studies, and Criminal Justice at Spring Arbor University in Michigan. He has a PhD in Sociology from Michigan State University, a a Master's Degree in Sociology from Michigan State University, a JD from Syracuse University, a Master's in International Relations from Syracuse University, and a Bachelor's of Business Administration english degree and a sociology degree all from spring arbor in 2002 is when he first graduated he has been on faculty at spring arbor since 2006 and routinely teaches modern social social problems and a bunch of other classes including um social stratification international human rights and careers in sociology and global studies and they list a bunch of other things From a professional standpoint, Dr. Norwood is extremely involved in the movement to address human trafficking in the Jackson, Michigan area, as well as all over the state of Michigan. In addition to completing his doctoral dissertation on human trafficking indicators amongst migrant farm worker populations in western Michigan, he has helped to train thousands of professionals from several fields, counselors, social workers, dental hygienists, public health officials, emergency room personnel, probation officers, among others across the state per the requirements listed by the state of Michigan. Dr. Norwood has also helped... Edit an upcoming book on the history and effectiveness of one of the county's, country's strongest human trafficking coalitions in Central Florida. Presented at numerous conferences and talks on the issue of human trafficking, and has collaborated with Spring Arbor University students to organize the Spring Arbor University annual conference on human trafficking, which takes place in mid-October every fall semester on the Spring Arbor University's main campus. And yeah, Spring Arbor University is in Spring Arbor, Michigan. And you can learn more by going to arbor.edu and learn more about Dr. Norwood and Spring Arbor University. I wanted to thank the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association, also known as MAHACA, for hosting this training and making it available across the state to mental health workers and really anyone who wants to sign up. And uh, I wanted to thank, in particular, the president, Napoleon Harrington, LPC, And Napoleon told me, we are happy that this program is an outreach for people to become aware of the inherent issues in human trafficking. Uh, We are all about empowering people through knowledge, experience, and the training. And I want to thank the executive director, James Blundo, LPC. He said, the state of Michigan is requiring that as of 2019, all health professionals are required to attend an educational course about human trafficking. This is done to increase the awareness among health professionals who may have victims of human trafficking in their offices and i know that napoleon and james are both amazing advocates for victims of human trafficking and are helping promote dr norwood and joyce as they bring this training all over the state of michigan and maybe elsewhere eventually thanks so much for listening to the intentional clinician i've been your host paul krauss licensed professional counselor I have a private practice in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I am also in Arizona and do consulting there with behavioral health organizations and individuals as well uh, for several months of the year. And you can find out more about my private practice by going to healthforlifegr.com. That's Health for Life Grand Rapids if you use the search engine on your computer. Again, thank you for listening, and I appreciate anyone wanting to share this podcast to get this information out there to the public. Take care now. Modern life
2: is a palace Built on endless suffering.